keeping James, uh, I've been thinking that when we put James in practice, we're actually doing God's will, aren't we? Um, is there any kids here? Or just a few? Look, a bit of a challenge for you guys. If you want to um, mark on a bit of paper every time I mention the word surrender, and we'll count up how many times at the end um, we use that word this morning. Surrender. <coughs> oh, that's one. <laughs> Two is already. Uh, got a, can we get a picture up on the um, on the slide? Thanks, Andrew. I don't know if you've ever, you guys have ever heard of these before. Um, it's, a, it's a cleaning station. Cleaning stations are located uh, out in the ocean, and uh, fish and other marine life come and gather there and get a good clean. It's a bit like a car wash. Uh, when the fish arrive um, at this cleaning station, they present this unnatural look. Uh, I don't know what that looks like. For sharks, it's like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, and when fish come along and they sort of fish in, uh, swim in and out of their, their jaws, uh, their razor-sharp jaws, sort of oblivious to um, the idea of being killed, um, which sort of makes me ask the question that these fish can um, be so close together and get along, why can't we just get along? God has designed us and created us to be in relationships. Why? Because God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are in perfect unity and we were created out of that. Unlike the theory of evolution, um, that, that teaches the idea that it all started through chaos whereas we were created out of order, out of peace, respect and love. Since the fall, however, conflict has become a fact of life. In spite of treaties, world peace organisations, Remembrance Day services, not only are wars between nations, but there are wars of one kind or another almost on every level of life. We only have to skim the newspapers. We can find a number of stories. At the moment, our hearts go out to the people of Paris and how they've been affected by the attacks. What a tragedy. I split this passage up into four sections. The first section I've titled The Problem. Let's read from verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. We hear of the killings in France, But the sad fact is that where there are are wars and fights, they're amongst Christians as well. To suggest that this passage does not apply to believers is unrealistic and it robs the passage of its true, true value for us. In fact, fights and quarrels have often been a problem throughout God's people. Lot... Um, when I think of back through the stories in the Bible, Lot caused a quarrel with his uncle Abraham. Absalom, he created a war for his father David 
Even the disciples created problems for the Lord when they argued over who was the greatest in the kingdom. When you examine some of the early churches, you discover that they had their fair share of disagreements too. The members of the Corinthian church were competing with each other in the public meetings, even suing, suing each other in court. The Galatian believers were biting and devouring one another. Paul had to admonish the Ephesians to cultivate spiritual unity. And even the church of Philippi had problems. But why are we at war with one another? We belong to the same family. We trust the same Saviour. We are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, aren't we? And yet we fight one another. Why? What causes these fights? Well, James tells us it arises from the strong desires within us which are constantly struggling to be satisfied. There is the lust to accumulate material possessions. There is the yearning for prestige. There is a craving for pleasure. There is a drive for power. And these powerful forces are at work within us. We are never satisfied. We always want more. And yet it seems we are constantly frustrated in our desire to get what we want. The, unfulfilling, unfulfillment, sorry, the unfulfilled longing becomes so powerful that we trample on those who seem to obstruct our progress. James says you murder. He uses this word largely in a figurative sense. We don't literally kill, but the anger, the jealousy and cruelty um, which regenerate a sort of um, murder in embryo. Verses 2 and 3, you covet and cannot obtain. We want to have more things and better things than others. You shall not covet is the last of God's Ten Commandments but its violation can make us break all the other nine. Covetousness can make a person murder, tell lies, dishonour their parents, commit adultery and in one way or another violate all of God's moral laws. Here's a scenario. John and Jane have just got married. John has a fair job with a moderate salary. Jane wants a house as good as the other young couples at church. John wants a new car. Jane wants fine furnishings and appliances. Some of these things they have to purchase on their credit card. They decide to increase their home loan so they have more money to spend. John's salary is hardly sufficient to bear the strain. Then a baby is born into the family. This means added expenses and a badly unbalanced budget. As Jane's demands mount, John becomes cross and irritable. Jane retaliates with backbiting and tears. Soon the walls of the house are vibrating with a crossfire. Materialism is destroying the home. On the other hand, it may be that Jane is jealous. She feels that Bob and Sue have a more prominent place in the church than she and John. Soon she makes snide remarks to Sue. As the battle between them increases in tempo, 
John and Bob become involved in the fighting. Then the other Christians take sides and the congregation is divided. All because of one person's lust for prominence. Here then is the source of the bickering and the strife among believers. It comes from the, di- from the desires for more and more and from jealousy of others. Keeping up with the Joneses is the polite name for it. But more accurately, but more accurately we should call it greed, covetousness and envy. The desire becomes so strong that people will, will do almost anything to gratify their lusts. What do you do when you, get, when you don't get what you want? How do you handle the letdown? If you've ever had to say no to a kid before, uh, you'll know what, where I'm coming from. They're all the same. First of all, first of all they start asking. And uh, you say no. And then if they didn't ask nicely the first time, they'll add in a please. Um, some girls have even got this down pat. They'll you know, flatter their big eyes and... Depending on how they're playing this, they'll either you know, um, give you an adorable smile or they'll, they'll drop their bottom lip and even water their eyes a bit. But after you said no, um, that we then get to the nagging stage. Can I please have one? Come on, please. Please, just one, come on. How about now? Now? If you've persisted this long, the kid knows you're serious and they're going to have to play smart. So they start negotiating. Oh, come on, Johnny got one. Why can't I? I'll pay with it out of my own money. If I get it now, we won't have to come back later. I won't ask again. At, the point that, at this point, the kid is getting desperate. They're down to the last option. Tantrum. <laughs> Liam's chucked a few in his time. He's uh, got the foot stomping down pat, arm waving, wriggling around on the floor. If it wasn't for the, um, the fact that he was crying, it makes some good dance moves, I reckon. Adult tantrums are no different. In fact, sometimes even worse. They hurt other people. How do you react when someone else gets what you want? When they get those results you were trying so hard to get? Or that promotion you were going for? Or that house you would love to have? Or simply the way of doing things? Parents, don't ever fight in front of your kids. It's not good for their development. They don't need to see how you fight. They need to see how you love. James says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Why don't we ask God? Why don't I ask God? How often do we seek other alternatives rather than going straight to the one who provides and sustains us? Don't argue. Don't fight. Pray. James reminds us that believers should ask God for what they seek rather than fighting each other. I believe prayerlessness results in failure to receive many of God's blessings. 
On Friday we went on a school excursion and I was responsible for coordinating it. Um, I'd organised a tour of a quarry in Montrose and then we were going to explore some caves in Yarra Junction. Pretty jam-packed day. The quarry tour had been arranged a couple of months ago and so on Monday I sent the guy an email, the quarry manager, just to make sure that things were okay. Well, the manager wrote back to me Monday night saying he couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't do it. We'd have to reschedule. Start freaking out because, you know, we can't reschedule. I booked the caves, paid for, the, paid for that. The kids are looking forward to going to a quarry. Parents have filled out permission forms. They're expect, expecting us we, that we go. This was a pretty unique experience. I had no idea where I was going to find another quarry that would let a group of grade four students around their work site. I happened to be around at my parents' place that night and um, as I was leaving, Mum said, well, let's pray about it. How silly of me. You You do not have because you do not ask God. The first thing I should be doing is turning to God. As I was walking home, I... I prayed and asked God to show me what to do, um, how to handle it. Tuesday morning I called an independent quarry uh, up in Castella near Tulangi. The owner sounded interested and by Wednesday he'd organised someone to show us around the quarry. They gave us a full tour on Friday, allowed us to drive down into the pit, um, see, see it working um, it, was, it was amazing. God is just waiting for us to ask. In saying that though, James is not implying that God wills to grant our sinful and selfish desires. He says, when you ask, you still don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. So not all prayers are pleasing to God. What is the right motive then? How do I know if I have the wrong motive? This chapter starts with James reminding us that our desires cause us to fight and quarrel. It's our selfish desires. It's not hard being selfish. I'm really, really good at it. Um, here's a list of scenarios. Uh, I want you to listen and see if you're selfish. Um, you might be selfish if you have a genuinely difficult time letting someone else have the remote control. <laughs> you might be selfish if You pick up the last piece of chicken, take a bite, hold it up and say, oh, does anyone else want it? (laughs) You might be selfish if you have a lifetime subscription to Self magazine. You might be selfish if your favourite picture at home is the mirror. You might be selfish if you're on a date and you say, all right, enough about me, let's talk about what you think of me. You might be selfish if you're a baby, a toddler, a child, an adult male or female. We can all be selfish at times. It's usually the easier option. We naturally think of ourselves first. The essence of sin is selfishness. Eve disobeyed God because he wanted to eat, because, um, she wanted to eat the tree and become wise like God. Abraham lied about his wife 
because he selfishly wanted to save his own life. Achan caused defeat to Israel because he selfishly took some forbidden loot from the ruins of Jericho. Sometimes we use prayer as a cloak to hide our true desires. But I prayed about it. It can be one of the biggest excuses a Christian can use. Instead of seeking God's will, we tell God what he's supposed to do. And we get angry at him if he doesn't obey. This anger at God eventually spills over and we get angry with God's people. More than one church split has been caused by Christians who take their frustrations with God on the members of the church. Family problems would be solved if people would only look at their own hearts and see the battles raging there. When our praying is wrong, our whole Christian life is wrong. It has well been said that the purpose of prayer is not to get men's will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on earth. Selfish living and selfish praying always leads to war. If there is war on the inside, then ultimately there is war on the outside. So James tells us the severity of of our selfish attitude and points us in the right direction. Let's read verse verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. James compares friendship with the world to adultery. When you become a Christian, you are married to Christ and you ought to be faithful to him. The Jewish Christians read this letter who understood this picture of spiritual adultery because the prophets Ezekiel, Jeremiah and Hosea used it when rebuking Judah for her sins. By adopting the sinful ways of other nations and by worshipping their gods, the nation of Judah committed adultery against her God. When James says a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God, what does that actually mean? The world does not mean the planet on which we live or the, the world of nature about us. It is the system which has been built up for himself in an effort to satisfy the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh and the pride of life. In this system there is no room for God or his son. It may be the world of art, culture, education, science or even religion but it is a sphere in which the name of Christ is unwelcome or even forbidden. It is in short the world of mankind outside the sphere of the true church. To be a friend of this system is to be an enemy of God. It was this world that crucified the Lord the Lord of life and glory. In fact, it was the religious world that played the key role in putting him to death. How unthinkable it would be for us as Christians to walk arm in arm with the world that murdered our Saviour. God wants us to love him first and foremost. When we love the passing things of this world, 
we are being untrue to him. Covetousness is a form of idolatry. It means that we strongly desire what God does not have, does not want us to have. This means that we set up idols in our hearts. We value material things above the will of God. Therefore, covetousness is idolatry and idolatry is spiritual unfaithfulness to the Lord. It's not a sudden shift. A Christian doesn't all of a sudden um, get worldly. It's a gradual thing. Versus friendship with the world is where their lives start aligning with the approval of the world. And James talks about this in chapter 1 where he talks about being polluted. Friendship then leads to loving the world. This makes it easy to conform to the world. When I think of Abraham, he was a friend of God. Lot, on the other hand, he was a friend of the world. Lot ended up in a war and Abraham had to rescue him. Where is your heart? Where is my heart? What drives us? What makes us do the things we do? You can't have your foot in both worlds. It will always be impossible to satisfy the expectations of unbelievers whose hearts are set in the world and at the same time please God. There's an old West African proverb which says, the man who tries to walk two roads will split his pants. (laughs) That's the way it is with those who try to live for the Lord and the pleasures of this world at the same time. They're trying to walk two roads which can only lead to disaster in the end. We have, to, we have a choice to follow two kingdoms, that is, two standards. Each kingdom has a way of ordering things and getting things done. When Jesus came to earth, he showed us what God's kingdom is like, how he wants us to live and what he considers important. His kingdom is completely different to the kingdom of this world. And of all the texts in the Bible, um, Luke 6 has the most succinct um, description, description, a list. If you could turn with me in your Bibles, keep your finger in James and turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 20, it says, Looking at the disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you. Jump down to 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Biblical um, scholar Michael Wilcock, in his study of this text, observes that in the life of God's people there are a remarkable reversal of values. Christians will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world calls desirable. 
The things the world puts at the bottom of its list are at the top of the kingdom of God. And the things that are suspect in the kingdom of God are prized by the kingdom of this world. What's at the top of the list in the kingdom of this world? Well, power and money. See verse 24. You who are rich. What else? Success and recognition. See verse 26. When all men speak well of you. But what's at the top of God's list? Weakness and poverty. See verse 20. You who are poor. And verse 22. When men hate you. There's going to be suffering and rejection. This list is inverted in the kingdom of God. I'm concerned with Christians today, myself included, that we're more in love with the, the idea of following Jesus rather than actually following the teachings of Jesus. Is he just our Lord and Saviour? Or is he also our teacher, our rabbi, someone we want to emulate? For us, the kingdom of God begins with weakness, relinquishment, giving up our rights to our own life, surrender. It begins with admitting that we need a saviour and surrendering our lives. We need someone to actually fulfil all the requirements and pay for our sin. That's weakness. Jesus started in weakness, first by becoming human and second by going to the cross. If we, want to, if we want him in our life, we have to start in weakness too. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. To prove God gives grace as is needed, James quotes Proverbs 3.34. But here there is an added thought that is to the humble, not the proud, that, the grace, that this grace is promised. God resists the proud but he cannot resist the broken spirit. James has been crying out against the sins of the saints. His words have pierced our hearts like arrows of conviction. They've fallen like thunderbolts from the throne of God and we realise that God has been speaking to us. Our hearts have been bowed beneath the influence of his word but the question is now, what shall we do? What actions do we need to take? Let's read verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Uh, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Here we find six steps to be followed where there is true repentance. First thing to do is to submit to God. This means that we must be subject to him, ready to listen to him and fully obey him. We must must be tender and contrite, not proud and stiff-necked. Unconditional surrender is the only way to complete victory. After King David committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed her husband, he hid his sins for almost a year. There was war between him and God and David had declared it. 
when he finally submitted to God, David experienced peace and joy. Submission is an act of the will. It is saying, not my will, but thine be done. Two, when we resist the devil, uh, sorry, then we must resist the devil. We do this by closing our ears and hearts to his suggestions and temptations. We do this by using scripture as a sword of the spirit to repel him. And if we resist him, he will flee from us. Pride is Satan's great sin and is one of his chief weapons in his warfare against the believer and the saviour. God wants us to be humble. Satan wants us to be proud. You will be like God, Satan promised Eve, and she believed him. God wants us, wants us to depend on his grace, while the devil wants us to depend on ourselves. Satan is the author of the all-do-it-yourself spiritual enterprise. He enjoys inflating the ego and encouraging the believer to do it his own way. Three, the next, next thing we should do is draw near to God. We do this by prayer. We must come before him in desperate, believing prayer, telling him all that is on our heart. And as we approach him, we find that he will graciously draw near to us. We thought he would be far from us because of our sin and our worldliness. But when we draw near to him, he forgives us and restores us. He will not share us with anyone else. He must have complete control. The double-minded Christian can never be close to God. Again, Abraham and Lot come to mind. Abraham drew near and talked to God about Sodom while Lot moved into Sodom and lost the blessing of God. The fourth step is cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Hands speak of our actions and hearts represent our motives and our desires. We cleanse our hands and purify our hearts through confession and forsaking sins, both outward and inward. As sinners, we need to confess evil acts. As double-minded, we need to confess our mixed motives. Confession should be, complete, uh, should be accompanied by deep sorrow of sin. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. When God visits us in conviction of sin, it's not time for a light-hearted flippancy. Rather, it's a time where we should be prostrate ourselves before him and mourn over our sinfulness, our powerlessness, our coldness and barrenness. Finally, we should humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. If we honestly take our place in the dust at his feet, he will lift us up in due time. Lewis closes his passage about losing your life to find it with this. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death and the the death of your ambitions and favourite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fibre of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have given away will be really yours. Nothing in that 
has, sorry, nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. James finishes this section with a practical example. He comes back to the initial problem um, of speaking evil against each other. Verse 11. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges and speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? The royal law of love says that we should love our neighbour as ourselves. To speak evil against a brother, therefore, or to judge his motives, is the same as speaking against this law and and condemning it as worthless. To break a law deliberately is to treat it with disrespect and contempt. It is the same as saying that law is not good, it's not worthy of obedience. He who refuses obedience virtually says it ought not be law. Now, this puts the one who speaks evil of a brother in the strange position of being judge rather than the one who is being judged. He sets himself up as being superior to the law rather than subject to it. But only God is superior to the law he is the one who gave it and he is the one who judges it. Who then has the audacity to assume the place of God and judge another? Someone has suggested that, suggested that there are three questions we should answer before indulging in criticism of others. What good does it do your brother? What good does it do yourself? what glory for God is in it. James is not forbidding us to use discrimination or even to evaluate people. Christians need to to have discernment but they must not act like God is passing judgment. We must first examine our own lives and then try to help others. We never know all the facts And we certainly never know the motives in the people's lives. To speak evil of a brother or sister, to judge them on the basis of partial evidence and probably unkind motives is to sin against them and against God. We're not called to be judges. God is the only judge. He is patient and understanding. He judges us justly and and holy and we can leave that matter to him. So in conclusion, if we obey these instructions and surrender our lives, then God will draw near to us. He will cleanse us and forgive us and the wars will cease. We must not be at war with God. So we will not be at war with God, so we will not be at war with ourselves. This means we will not be at war with others. Remember James is writing to a group of scattered Christians. He isn't writing to a certain church addressing a specific conflict that's going on. 
He isn't taking sides. He's simply getting to the, the heart of the problem. Recently there's been some conflict in our church here at Monty. I believe it's no coincidence that we're studying James right now. As I've been preparing and studying this passage, God has revealed to me how broken I am, how selfish I've been and how I must respond. What has God been saying to you? How do you need to respond? I'm going to pray in a moment and uh, after I pray we're going to have a time of reflection. I'm going to ask a couple of the uh, musos to come up and they're going to sing a song and I want you to reflect and think about what God's been saying to you this morning. If you'd like some prayer, um, you can come down the front and um, someone will be there to pray with you. If you want to turn to the person next to you and pray with them, you can do that. We're going to spend this time reflecting and then uh, when the music fades, um, feel free to join us for morning tea. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, just like a mirror, it shows us what we are like. It reveals to us what our heart is like, our deep thoughts, concerns, attitudes and worries. I pray that your Holy Spirit will stir up in us areas of our lives that we need to submit to you, things that we need to confess, and ways we can humble ourselves before you and others around us. Father, we surrender our lives to you. Take them, break them, refine them, transform them and use them for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' precious name.